right appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Listen in as the faith held by believers of all times is now delivered to you. I suppose there's a couple of ways of doing theology. There's the way where you can um, pick up the Bible and and read it and objectively conclude that the Jesus that is presented in the Holy Scriptures is the Jesus of of history and, and the Jesus that teaches us things about God and that he himself is God. I suppose the other way to do theology would be to uh, take the Bible in one hand, erase the parts that you don't like, add parts that you do like, and then come up with a Jesus that works for you. Well, that's what our topic today is about. Thank you for tuning in to Once for All. It's great to have you with us. I'm your host, Pastor Evan Gigland, the pastor of Faith Lutheran Church in Rogue River, Oregon, and we are continuing our conversation with the author of the book, Will the Real Jesus Please Stand Up?, the book that is focuses on the various false Christs that are invented when someone does not just take the objective text of the scriptures at face value, but alters them in some way. Uh, the book is, Will the Real Jesus Please Stand Up?, and the author is with us, Matt Richard. Matt, welcome back. Hey, it's good to be back, Evan. Well, uh, we... We talked. We started this series last week, and um, we want to continue that this week. But uh, before we launch into the the other false Christ that we'll encounter today, give us an overview again of what this book is all about. Yeah, you know, you've summarized it quite well there uh, right before in the introduction there. But really, it comes down to the idea that when we look at Jesus, we don't, you know, as as, as a culture, as people, as a whole, uh, we still have a somewhat favorable opinion of Jesus. And what we want to do is we don't want to totally reject him, just outright eject, reject Jesus. So uh, like uh, a person who creates an idol out of wood, we take our chisel, which is going to be our chisel of ideas, and we come in and we chisel away that which we don't like from Jesus, and then we get the super glue out, and uh, we come and we add and glue and attach things to Jesus uh, that actually suit our own fancy. And so this book really captures 12 different false Christs that are prevalent in our American culture. And uh, as the reader goes through, you're going to see that uh, you basically start with the premise of Jesus, and then many of these false Christs, they're either subtracting or adding uh, to Jesus. But there's enough Jesus there that uh, makes him somewhat familiar to the Scriptures, but yet, oh boy, he's off ever so slightly, which then takes us to a false Christ. Keeping in mind the reminder that you gave us last week that the stories that we encounter in your book are uh, fictionized stories based upon real events. And with that in mind, introduce us to Mr. Darby, who is one of your college professors. Yeah, Mr. Darby. Um, well, you know, Mr. Darby is very interesting. You know, it's difficult to discern, and again, like these are fictitious uh, characters based upon real-life events. Uh, Mr. Darby here is very difficult to kind of... Uh, Boy, we would say pig. We, we don't quite know if he's an atheist or an agnostic or just a uh, secular skeptic. Uh, he, doesn't, he kind of fluctuates between all of those. Um, what we realize with Mr. Darby, he does have some affection for Jesus. He doesn't really have the ability to outright reject Jesus. And really that pulls back to his, um, you know, probably his very sentimental, uh, warm feelings of growing up, you know, going to Sunday school with his grandma. And so he's, he's not quite at the point where he's going to be very antagonistic and outright just kick Jesus to the curb, yet at the same time he can't embrace the Jesus of the Bible. Uh, specifically, he can't embrace uh, the miracles of Jesus, the divinity of Jesus. And so he wants to see him as a good teacher. So Mr. Darby, like the other characters in the book, uh, he comes to Jesus and he uh, strips or strains away the uh, divinity. Anything uh, that's of a divine, um, a divine flavor with, with Jesus, the miracles, uh, him claiming to be God, all of his healings, walking on water, rising from the dead, all of that is strained away. And then what we're left with, with Mr. Darby, is just a good moral teacher. So is, what's the... Um you know, in, in uh, theology, we oftentimes talk about the material principle uh, versus the formal principle. Uh, the difference between those two things, the, the material principle is the main heart and center focus of, of one's theology. 
and the material principle, or excuse me, the formal principle is where one gets that theology. What's the formal and material principle of Mr. Darby? Yeah, you know, so Mr. Darby, again, you know, he, he holds to Jesus, um, so he, 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 he will embrace and confess Jesus, um, but yet what he does is he probably slips into more of a, uh, what we would say is more of a secularism, a very secularistic kind of view, um, you know, atheistic tendencies we would hear with him. Uh, so if we just think of uh, any atheists that we've run into or, uh, you know, some of the popular atheists um, in our culture today, in our day and age, if we listen to them talk and how they approach uh, the uh, scriptures, you, you take that uh, ethos, that flavor, um, of the uh, secularism, the atheism, and you bring that in. And so Mr. Darby actually, you know, he, he, he grabs hold of Jesus, but yet he, uh, he's really buying in. He's got a really one of his, you know, his foot really, really anchored pretty deeply in secularism um, and atheism. And so then that actually skews uh, his view of Jesus uh, quite drastically. And again, like we, what we said before, it, it actually strips away the divinity of Jesus and strips away the miracles of Jesus. And then when it comes to the Bible, uh, you know, we can get, in this, get into this a little bit later on. He says he reads the Bible, but he doesn't read it literally. Literally, And uh, we have to unpack what that means and essentially what he means authoritatively. Okay. Um, so when, when he's going to try and uh, say that the, the, we, can, we can take the Bible, but we shouldn't understand it literally, how are we supposed to understand it if not literally? Yeah, that, that, you know, that phrase, you know, we hear that a lot in our culture where people say, you know, I don't read the Bible literally, and I guess my question is, well, how do you read, you know, a book not literally? I mean, uh, that's actually, you know, kind of an oxymoron to say, you know, I, I, I read this book, but I don't read it literally. Um, but what, what Mr. Darby is actually saying when he, what he's actually meaning when he says that he doesn't read the Bible literally is he doesn't read it authoritatively. Uh, so he doesn't read it as an authority on Jesus. He doesn't read it as an authority on life and faith. Uh, so he, he, he approaches the scriptures from what we would say is a magis- magisterial use of reason, like a magistrate, like a judge who stands above everything else and judges. Uh, Mr. Darby, he stands above the scriptures looking down upon them, and he judges the Bible. He judge, judges Jesus according to his own intellect and his own reason. And so he is appealing to his reason, his secular um, tendencies, his atheist, atheistic uh, leanings. And so he imposes his own reason, his own intellect, his own perceived abilities over top of the scriptures. And that's the reason why he says he doesn't read it literally. Uh, he does not read it with an authority. He's the authority in his life. He's the authority over Jesus. He's the authority over the Bible. So everything must be filtered through him and through his reason and through his uh, intellect and through his uh, rational way of processing things. So we're learning here a um, a way of doing theology, and that is to say that um, that, that when, we, when we're going to approach an understanding of Jesus, then it has to be through the words of the Scripture, through the words of the text. And when... Um, when we come to a part of the text that we don't like, we need to somewhat wrestle with it, uh, and 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 at some point even just say, uh, I maybe don't even understand this, but I believe it because that's what the scripture says. But if we now kind of have this emergency button that says any part that's uh, difficult for me to understand, I'll say I'm taking that figuratively. Um, well, then that's just putting us really as God rather than the text that is the word of scripture. Um, but in Mr. Darby's case, after he's gone through this filtering process of taking out the parts of the scripture, the parts about Jesus he doesn't really like, what Jesus is he left with? Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, he, he's, he's really left with a good teacher. I mean, that's, that's the essence. He's left with like a, just a, in, in, you know, a first century rabbi who had some really good things to say about love, some wise proverbs, um, and some good thoughts, and that he... Uh, had a you know substantial following of people, but you know everything when it comes to him uh, giving life to the dead, uh, healing uh, those who are blind, um, you know bringing life to legs that have not walked in years, um, to bring curing to leprosy, uh, walking on water, uh, rising from the dead, forgiving the sins of the entire world. All of these things uh, cannot be present with Mr. Darby's false Christ. They just can't exist. The idea 
of having a Christ who is divine, a Christ who can do the miraculous, actually uh, threatens Mr. Darby quite drastically, because Mr. Darby has positioned himself over top of Christ, over top of the Word, but to have an idea that uh, Christ is divine, that Christ can do these miraculous things, that Christ is Lord and God, well, then that uh, basically inverts uh, how Mr. Darby approaches the uh, spirituality. It would put him underneath as a created being, underneath the Lord, and he, he just simply cannot handle the idea of being a created being. He wants to be in the position of the Creator. He wants to be the master and commander of his universe, uh, putting everything else underneath his feet. Now, that sounds extremely arrogant, and that's essentially what he's doing, but, uh, he, you know, he, he also has a struggle where, um, by doing that, he can't totally, like I said, you know, kick Jesus to the curb because uh, that just that kind of rattles his cage. He still has this nice sentimental um, embrace of Jesus. So that's the reason why he creates a false Christ. Again, as we hit last week when we talked about this, uh, the, the, the danger of a false Christ and the danger of idolatry is a person doesn't have to reject Jesus. They just refashion him according to suit their own fancy. So Mr. Darby, he doesn't have to reject Jesus. He can still kind of retain that Jesus that he has from his childhood of going to uh, Sunday school with his, with his grandma. But yet at the same time, he doesn't have to submit or his knee or his intellect bow to the, the Christ of the Scriptures because he has actually stripped Jesus of all of his divinity and placed this false Christ underneath his feet. With this false Christ that that uh, that, that Darby has invented for, for himself, um, does this does this Christ, which which you call the the good teacher, um, does this Christ do anything for Mister Darby's sins? No, absolutely not. I mean, he absolutely cannot. I mean, the most he can do is 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 impart some maybe wise proverbs or some ideas of how to love and so forth. Um, but beyond that, uh, this false Christ is no different than Plato or Socrates, um, you know, or Aristotle. Uh, this this uh, false Christ that he's created is really no different than all the different gurus uh, and the wise sages that we have of our modern day and age. Um, but when it comes to sin, because this false Christ is not divine, according to Mr. Darby, uh, he has absolutely no power to forgive sin. He has no power over death. He has no power over hell, and he has no power over the devil, because he's been stripped of all of those divine, um, the divine characteristics of his divinity. And so without his divinity, uh, only God can forgive sin. So if Christ is not God, uh, he is just a, you know, a good teacher that is just there in your back pocket to pull out and to uh, have some nice sentiments towards and to uh, you know, have maybe impart some wisdom as we stumble through this life. But when it comes to forgiveness of sins, uh, resurrection over the dead, um, you know, uh, conquering the devil and so forth, uh, this false Christ is completely powerless. How do we start to begin the response with Mr. Darby? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, with Mr. Darby, you know, the, the challenge is is this, and this is really a fundamental challenge, it really goes back to Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, we hear that God created, um, you know, the heavens and the earth, that we have been created, that we're created beings. And so Mr. Darby really is in a position where he uh, is rejecting his role and his place as a created being, and he's trying to usurp the Creator in his own mind. And so we really need to start right there with Mr. Darby. He's trying to help him understand that he's a created being and that the Creator stands above him, um, and also help him understand that he is implementing um, a magisterial use of reason, which is what we talked about earlier. It's like a magistrate, like a judge, uh, to help him understand that he is standing above the Scriptures um, and that he can't, you know, he can't have his cake and eat it too when it comes to Jesus. Either Jesus is fully divine, uh, you know, either Jesus is fully divine and fully God, uh, you know, that he has risen from the dead, or he's not. Uh, there's no middle ground with this. Uh, there's no sloshy middle. So Mr. Darby uh, really has to come to that point of facing the real Jesus and um, either, <laughs> either bow his knee uh, in repentance and faith to the real Christ, or just simply acknowledge that he is truly an atheist through and through, and that, that may sound harsh, but really, he's going to be better off being an atheist, knowing that, than being in that sloshy middle, 
embracing a false Christ and thinking everything is, um, you know, hunky-dory. <laughs> we could say colloquial-wise. All right, we need to take a quick break. When we get back from this break, we'll continue in uh, this series of the book in which we encounter more false Christ. What's up next? Well, what's next is the the therapist. Jesus, the therapist. We'll be talking about that right after this break. The phone lines are now open. Call toll-free 1-844-51-FAITH. That's 1-844-51-FAITH. This is Life Issues with Brad Mattis, president of Life Issues Institute. The superintendent of Saline Area Schools in Michigan had enough sense to first ask the community what it thought before implementing a Planned Parenthood sex ed program. Planned Parenthood wanted to send in trained teens to teach part of the sex education curriculum. The superintendent was mighty glad he asked local residents first. His public statement on the matter was telling. It is very apparent that moving forward with any Planned Parenthood curriculum would be too divisive. Several residents said Planned Parenthood promoted promiscuity and abortion. It has been a failure in schools and isn't about health, it's a social movement. They're right on all counts, and area kids will benefit from their parents and other concerned citizens protecting them from its social agenda. Like us on Facebook at Life Issues and stay informed, more informed than you've ever been. In his foreword to Lucas Woodford's book, Great Commission, Great Confusion, or Great Confession, Dr. Harold Sinkbile cautions us against the desperate efforts of market-style evangelism and reminds us what the church really ought to be about. He writes, Desperation breeds innovation. When it dawns on churches that they are losing headway in terms of numerical growth, panic ensues. We've got to do something, they cry. Here's something, let's do it. In the name of contextualizing the gospel, it would appear almost anything goes. Methods from the entertainment and sales industries have been widely adapted, adopted, and imported, but to little or no avail. Statistically, the church, especially in North America, seems to be in decline. The key to the church's vitality for the looming post-Christian era is the same as it was in the pre-Christian era. Doctrinal clarity coupled with corresponding faithful practice. That was Harold Sinkbile for today's Takedown Minute. With the SRN News Business Brief, I'm Dennis Crowley. In a new case about digital age technology and privacy, the Supreme Court will consider whether police need warrants to review cell phone tower records that help them track the location of criminal suspects. The justices have agreed to hear an appeal from a man who was sentenced to 116 years in prison after being convicted of armed robberies in Michigan and Ohio. Apple is making changes to adapt to several up-and-coming technology trends. It has unveiled a new smart home speaker and device featuring virtual reality, online privacy, and a form of artificial intelligence called machine learning. The HomePod speaker is similar to devices from rivals, some of which have been on the market for years. And on Wall Street, the Dow Jones Industrial Average fell just over 22 points with business. I'm Dennis Crowley. Welcome back to Once for All, where we're talking to the author of the book, Will the Real Jesus Please Stand Up? Matt Richard is with us. If you want to chime into the conversation, you can give us a call toll-free, 1-844-51-FAITH, 1-844-51-FAITH, or you can send us an email or read your email right here, delivered once for all at gmail.com, delivered once for all at gmail.com. Pastor Richard, uh, I... Uh, enjoyed reading your book, and and in it, you uh, I I know how this is as a pastor. You'll get uh, invitations to go to various groups that promise to um, you know bring people into the church and all of this kind of a thing. And you had a similar invitation uh, from Wendy. And tell us a little bit about Wendy and how you came to uh, came to meet her. Yeah, when we look in this chapter here on um, the chapter called the therapist, uh, Wendy. Uh, invites me to a uh, group setting. Uh, it's a, it's a uh, it's called a growing more study, and uh, it's one of those things where you know, obviously, as a pastor, uh, you know, you always want to try to be supportive of people that you have in your own church and community and so forth. And 
when you get invitations, I, I typically try to go to things uh, when I'm invited, when I can, um, you know, to be gracious and courteous and kind and so forth. Um, and so I end up going to this growing more uh, study, and it's almost a, boy, uh, almost kind of comes across as a therapy session. And uh, Wendy is there, and, and uh, she starts off by uh, sharing about, um, you know, her and a couple other people end up sharing, and they're sitting in the group circle, and they're talking, and they display a Jesus that uh, is really more than anything else. He's kind of a means to another end. In other words, uh, this Jesus kind of gets you going, and he brings you to a new level. And so uh, he's not the home plate, if we use the metaphor of baseball. Jesus is not the goal to round the bases and get back to Jesus. Jesus is only like first base or maybe even second base, and that you, you get to him and he launches you off so that you can get to a home plate, which is some other end other than Jesus. And whether they realized they were doing this or not, the point is, is that Jesus was not the end, but he was a means to a different end that they had set forth. What is that end? Well, and that's the thing. Uh, when it comes to this kind of uh, ideology uh, that we get from uh, the therapist, which is uh, the, the false Christ that Wendy holds to, uh, it, it usually is some sort of, um, well, how would we say this, some higher fulfillment, uh, greater joy, um, some uh, deeper deeper uh, peace, and so it could be really almost anything, but the, the thing we have to look for are these adjectives um, that that describe us going deeper or higher um, to and more in depth uh, to something else other than Jesus. So it could be peace, it could be joy, it could be happiness, it could be a better marriage, uh, it could be uh, more financial independence, uh, it could be uh, greater health. Um, we, could, we could put anything we want in that variable, but the point being is that Jesus is there to get you from a lower tier to a higher tier. And he does that as you yield to him, as you let go and let God, and you let uh, the Lord Jesus Christ compel you up to that next level. And then unfortunately, when you get to that second level, which you really technically never do, uh, if you were to get to that second level, then frankly you really don't need Jesus. You know, it's like a therapist. You only need a therapist when things are bad, but when things are good, you don't need a therapist. And that's this false Christ. Um, you talk about these uh, testimonies that, that happen in, in churches oftentimes, so someone will stand up and give a testimony or their faith story, and um, many people find this uh, uh, encouraging because you get to hear what God is doing in someone's life. Um, what, 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 how, what criticism would you bring to the so-called testimonial? Well, testimonies can, you know, we want to be careful that we don't throw all testimonies under the, the bus here, but uh, testimonies, they can be good because they're um, confessions of how Christ has impacted a person. However, typically when I've heard testimonies over the last, you know, 38 years of my life, uh, usually the testimonies are simply something like this. Um, I was bad, and I struggled, and you could fill that in with whatever, you know, I had a bad marriage, or I was an alcoholic, or... You know, I, I didn't know peace, but then there was Jesus, and now, because of Jesus, I'm better. Um, and so there's a movement from being really, really bad to being really, really good. Now, does that happen? Yes, obviously that does happen. But uh, what can happen in those testimonies, it can be communicated to the listener that the, the goal for the Christian is to move from this, this lower tier to a supernatural higher tier where everything is going to be blissful and great and wonderful and you're never going to have any problems. And uh, the reality is that that's just not true. That I mean, you can have that, but what happens is our sinful nature that we have is with us to the very day that we die and that the devil is prowling around looking to destroy us. Uh, the world comes at us and the reality is that we are constantly fighting with the sin. And what can happen with that tier too uh, with those testimonies, with those two-tier approach, is that we can say, well, I was here, and then Jesus helped me get to this different level, and now I'm living at this different level independently um, with, with this wonderful success and happiness, and then everyone wants to be like you, and then they worship you rather than seeing the Christ in the midst of that. Um, I'm reminded, uh, <laughs> several years ago, I was at a uh, pastor's, uh, conference of some sort, and we're going around the room, and we're talking about our churches and how things were going, and every single pastor in the room, uh, you know, up to me up to that point, 
they were talking about, well, you know, we had vacation Bible school and we had 40 kids that came out or we had uh, some sort of big evangelism project and our church is growing by this much or we've launched this new ministry and this new ministry and this new ministry. And at the time, the church that I was in, we were going through some really, really uh, just difficult things in the church, a lot of fighting and struggling. And it got to me, to the testimony time, and I thought, well, here we go. And I just said, you know, uh, in my local church, uh, we've had a lot of sin. We've had a lot of struggle. We've had a lot of pain. We've had people that have joined, people that have left. We've had a lot of people uh, slander each other. Um, but in the midst of that, in the midst of all of our stupidity and all of our sin, I know that Christ is present in his word and sacrament and that he is ministering to us the forgiveness of sins. So I know as a church that we're completely fine in the midst of our mess as we are learning how to repent learning how to faith and receive Jesus, and learning what it means to be a Christian in the midst of the muck of our sin and the struggles of this world. <laughs> and when we got done, we could hear a pin drop, because it was so drastically different uh, from these other testimonies that were definitely embedded in this two-tier type approach of uh, you know using the Lord to get to some higher level um, where there's this absolute eternal bliss and peacefulness. Uh, so there's a definite contrast to that. Speaking pastorally, what's the spiritual fallout of someone who sees Christianity in this two-tier approach? Well, the problem is, I mean, fundamentally, you, you can lose Jesus. Um, when Jesus becomes a, a base that you have to round to get to a different home plate other than Jesus, uh, you can you can actually travel away from Jesus. I, you know, I'm reminded of the... Um, uh, book of Hebrews, the the epistle of Hebrews, and when you look at Hebrews, it talks about there, and I think it's in chapter 6, it says, uh, the author of Hebrews says, let us move on, uh, you know, to maturity, right, to move on uh, to, you know, basically he's saying, you know, to move away from from the milk and the uh, basics basics of the Christianity and move on to maturity, and when we read that, we often think, well, you know what, I've got Jesus, and so now I need to move on to maturity, which is something else, but what's surprising and which really actually shouldn't come to surprise to us, but when we look at the author of Hebrews, we go from uh, this real, I would say, almost immature, simple view of Jesus, and when he takes us on into a maturity, it isn't away from Christ, it's actually into the more mature doctrines of Jesus. It's more Jesus. And so for the Christian faith, we are not journeying away from Jesus. He's not just uh, the person who gets us saved, and then we're on to our own endeavors at a greater level. No, it's all Christ. We are always returning back to our baptisms. We're always confessing our sin, always hearing the forgiveness of sins, always receiving the sacrament, always hearing the word. Uh, It's like a circle, always coming back to Jesus as our foundation, never moving away from Christ. Uh, How do we... um, Well, before I ask that question, let's, let's, um, let's talk a little bit about this, this this idea where where we're always trying to move beyond Jesus to, um, you know, a, a better us, you know, the the person who doesn't struggle with this or that. Um, how should we understand Christianity in light of our present struggles? That I continue to sin in this life. How would you, um, how would you say that the the real Jesus, the historic Jesus, deals with that when I continue to struggle in my sin? Yeah, I think there's a definitely a difference in, in testimonies. Coming back to that idea of the testimony, if you see someone with a therapist false Christ, uh, their testimony is going to be, and this is going to be hit on in other chapters as well, there's kind of a, some, some of these false Christs, there's an overlap uh, with the different ideologies and different uh, assumptions with them. But with this one, with the therapist, uh, you know, you, you typically don't hear somebody going to a, a real therapist, right? Uh, and after they've gone to a therapist, talking about how their life has gotten worse. Usually when they talk about a therapist, it's when it's gotten better. So a person who embraces this false Christ is going to confess, you know, I was in the past tense, I was a sinner, I did have these struggles, and then I've moved on to a second tier of victory and hope and peace and so forth. Um, But the Christian, I think, uh, generally is going to be consistently saying, um, I, a poor and miserable sinner, have sinned in thought, word, and deed. In fact, which is what we say in our Lutheran churches every single Sunday. We start off, we, we beat our breast with our hand, and we say, I, a poor and miserable sinner, have sinned in thought, word, and deed. And uh, we're confessing our brokenness. And then we hear the real Jesus, the forgiveness of our sins. 
and then we go from there knowing that we're forgiven. And so our testimony of the Christian is always uh, twofold. I'm a sinner, I'm a great sinner, but I have an even greater Savior for me. Um, I believe that's John Newton that once said that, that, I have a great, that I'm a great sinner, and that Jesus is an even greater Savior. And so it's constantly running back to the source of our salvation, which is Jesus, returning back to his word, returning back to his, uh, this baptism that he has for us, returning to his body and blood given and shed for us for our forgiveness and for our strength and for our salvation, for our sustenance to be sustained uh, until the very end of the age. And so when it comes to this, the, the, the key characteristic is that one going the way of a therapist is going to be moving to independence, where the Christian is always going to be dependent, always returning back in need with open hands like a beggar to the Lord Jesus Christ for his gifts. How do you recommend we respond to our neighbors and friends and family that are much like Wendy? Yeah, you know, the, the, the thing is with Wendy, and whether she realizes it or not, Wendy is all about getting you to that second tier. I mean, that's her whole program, as we read in this chapter, her whole uh, growing more uh, study and ministry that she has created for herself is to get people from mediocrity to greatness, from averageness to greatness, to move them from a lower tier to a higher tier. And in order to do that, she implements a false Christ called the therapist. And this therapist then is, 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 is to enable you to move to that higher tier. So how do we combat uh, that mentality? I think more than anything else is we come back to our baptism. We come back to the assurance that we already have. And we challenge Wendy. We, we really do. We challenge Wendy and others like her to simply say, am I not sufficient enough in Christ Jesus for his shed blood right now? Uh, is this not good enough for me uh, in this life? Because if it isn't, then we need to point out that she's actually stripping away the real Jesus and trying to move us away from Christ. And so a very bold confession of Jesus and who he is for us, for the forgiveness of our sins, a very bold confession of the word and sacraments for us, and our assurance right where we are in the midst of whatever we are going through will be the biggest thing that will combat Wendy. And I would say when we do that, we're going to be ready because Wendy is all about getting us to a second tier. So she will actually be trying to create problems in our life in order to uh, try to get us to move to her second tier but my goodness, when we go that second tier, uh, whether Wendy realizes it or not, we're moving away from Jesus uh, to a false Christ. When we get back from this break, we're going to be uh, looking at Jesus, the giver of bling. Stay tuned. You're listening to Once for All. The phone lines are now open. Call toll-free 1-844-51-FAITH. That's 1-844-51-FAITH. This is Sacred Meditations. Almighty God, on this day you opened the way of eternal life to every race and nation by the promised gift of your Holy Spirit. Shed abroad this gift throughout the world by the preaching of the gospel, that it may reach to the ends of the earth. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Restoring a vibrant prayer life in the church, this is sacredmeditations.org. Thank you for making Sacred Meditations part of your day. For Table Talk Extras with Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. Faith and love are really two exactly opposite things. We can think of it like this. Love is what gives. The Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave. We know what comes next. Give. Love gives. Uh, Jesus says, No greater love is man than this, than that he lay down his life for his friend, that he give his life for his neighbors, for his friend. Love is always giving, serving, dying even to give and to serve. Faith, on the other hand, receives. Faith is at the getting into the gift. Faith is what says thank you uh, very much for this. So the Lord loves us in Christ. And by faith, we receive or have hold, take hold of that love that he gives to us. 
Now, we always confuse it. We want to have faith in our neighbor and love towards God. We want to receive things from our neighbor, justice and fairness and good treatment and all this sort of thing. And we want to then show our love and gratitude to God as if he is poor and he needs the things that we have to give. But that's reversing the way that God would have it. His love gives to us marvelous benefits, blessings beyond our, our asking or even our imagination. We have faith towards God who gives us these things. And then we have love towards our neighbor. As we share the gifts that God has given us, the gifts of love and life and forgiveness, as we share those with the neighbor who God has given as well, so we're, we're, we live, as uh, Luther learned from the scriptures, in faith toward God and in love toward the neighbor. May God keep us properly ordered in this life and even in the life to come. Amen. This has been a production of Table Talk Radio. For more information, visit tabletalkradio.org. And we're back talking with Matt Richard, author of the book, With a Real Jesus, Please Stand Up. And Matt, the uh, the next in the next chapter entitled uh, The Giver of Bling, which I think, by the way, of your nicknames of the false Christ, this one takes the cake. I love this uh, this title for, for this false Christ, The Giver of Bling. But you, you talk about the story of Olivia, who... Um, who was confirmed to have a uh, aggressive form of cancer, a brain tumor, I believe. And uh, you talk about a a couple in the in the community, Jim and Stacy, who were strong supporters of this little girl Olivia with cancer. And tell us how the support from Jim and Stacy started to shape faith in the minds of the people of your congregation. Yeah, a very, very tragic situation with Olivia having cancer, and uh, it came once very aggressively, and she beat it back, but then the second time it came through, um, cancer delivered the uh, technical knockout, and, and, it, and it definitely uh, uh, took little Olivia, I believe when she was about nine years old. And so, yeah, we, we meet the Jaggers, uh, Jim and Stacy, and they were uh, very, very prominent people in the community, and neighbors to uh, little Olivia and the uh, family of Olivia, and they uh, had a prayer group. And now we want to make sure to understand that having a prayer group or a group of people praying for Olivia is definitely wonderful and good and true. But where things went um, problematic with Jim and Stacy is that they begin to teach um, and instruct in this prayer group how to combat and how to fight uh, this cancer. And that may sound kind of weird, you know, how, how to do that. But see, Jim and Stacy, uh, they held to a, what we would call the word faith movement. They held to this idea that if you speak positive words of faith uh, towards a false Christ, which we call the giver of bling, then these positive words of faith will then unlock the uh, gifts of healing from this uh, Christ figure that they have to bring about restoration and healing of little Olivia. And so faith for the Jaggers is not so much about receiving God's gifts, but faith becomes the instrument that uh, mankind uses to, uh, using their words, to storm the gates of heaven to get the, re- you know, to get this false Christ, well, for them, uh, this, they're not, not a false Christ to them, but technically it is a false Christ, to get this Christ figure, this Messiah figure, to release and dispense healing upon little Olivia. And so, really, if you think of this, if Olivia is healed, well, then we've had enough faith, and if she's not healed, then the other, only other conclusion is that we have not had enough faith. And tragically, what happens when Olivia passes away, this is the verdict that Jim and Stacy level against their prayer group and people in the church, is that we just simply did not have enough faith, because if we would have had enough faith... Uh, Olivia would not have passed away. Again, uh, what's the spiritual uh, fallout from someone who holds this perspective of Jesus? Oh boy! Well, it, it's it's tragic. I mean, it, it just it just it strips everything. Well, we we want to. We should maybe pause here and mention that that one of the problems with the Jaggers is that when they read the scriptures, they have what we would call, in a big fancy word, an over-realized eschatology. In other words, when we read the Bible, we have to acknowledge that 
at some day, at point in the future, when Jesus comes back for us again with a trumpet sound and we are resurrected out of our graves, uh, given these brand new bodies, you know, be a Matt Richard 2.0, you know, we have these brand new bodies, that there will be no suffering, there will be no pain, there will be no more tears, no more disease, uh, no more sin. All of these things will be true. However, what Jim and Stacy uh, Jager have actually done is they've reached off into the distance, into the great eschaton, the very end of the age, and they've grabbed the promises that are ours at the very end of time, and they've grabbed those and they've brought them into the real present time right now. So they, they, they've over-realized this eschatology. They've taken in these promises and they apply them right here and right now. And the problem with that is when it doesn't happen, uh, it really comes back to, like I said earlier, that the Christian does not have enough faith. And so as we read this chapter and we interact with the Jagers, there's a part of the uh, story where we hear uh, myself uh, interacting with them, and, and I confess to them, you know, boy, you know, poor Olivia is probably not going to make it. Lord have mercy. And I'm actually scolded. I'm actually uh, rebuked by them for not speaking positive faith words, because if it is not positive faith words, if it is pessimistic words, then I am not storming the gates of heaven with faith, and then my faith is not clinging or cashing in on these promises that are ours, apparently ours, uh, only to be had by enacting it through faith. And so when Olivia died, uh, the only solution is either their theology and their false Christ is wrong, or that we as Christians did not pray enough. And unfortunately, like I said before, the, uh, uh, the verdict is that, that the Christians did not pray enough and that the church, that the Christians were responsible for Olivia's death. In this scenario, not only does it sound like there's a different Jesus, but there's also a different view of faith. Would you contrast the two? Yeah, absolutely. Faith is, is definitely uh, different for the Jaggers and this false Christ. You know, when we, when we see faith, I think the best way of understanding faith is faith is that which receives God's gifts. Faith is the open hand uh, that uh, receives the gift of the Word and sacraments. Faith is that which clings to the gifts. Faith is what clings to Jesus. So faith is not something that is a work of man that we uh, internalize. I mean, I think that's the whole key. Either faith is a gift that is given to us by the Lord to receive Him and His gifts, or faith is a work of man that uh, reaches upward and clings and that de- demands and uh, it's almost like an internal go-go juice that we use this faith to, to actualize, um, you know, and, and to get things going in our life. And so the Jagers definitely see faith as a work of man, something that's conjured up from within, and then we conjure up that faith and we use that faith, like I said, to storm the gates of heaven, to get God, to get this false Christ to cash in, whereas Faith, I believe, is very, very clearly shown as a gift that is a fruit of the Word and sacraments coming to us. And faith is like that beggar receiving the warm bread, um, you know, and embracing that warm bread, embracing the Savior, uh, clinging to the goods that the Savior gives to us. Faith is always coming back to Jesus to always receive more, uh, which is completely contrary to the Jaggers. Speak to someone who is in this view of Jesus and would be listening to what you're saying and say, well, look, when we read the the scriptures, we see Jesus uh, heal people with all kinds of infirmities. And in some cases, he even um, uh, expresses that this is because of the person's faith. Um, how, would, how would we rightly understand those texts about Jesus uh, in light of what you're saying about the false Christ of the giver of bling? Well, you know, I think <laughs> it's it's really interesting to think about this because you know, at one point in time, I, and as I was wrestling through this at one point in time in the past, I thought, well, boy, you know, is there some validity to this? Because Jesus does indeed heal a lot of people. It seems like everyone he comes across, like Bartimaeus, and we can think of all these people who are on the side of the road, um, you know, that are, either can't walk or can't see or have leprosy. All these people that he healed, and you say, you say to yourself, look, my goodness, he does heal. But what we have to keep in mind is, out of the thousands and thousands and thousands and hundreds of people that Jesus interacted with, you know, he only healed a fraction of those people. So, I mean, he, he definitely did not heal everybody in Israel at that time. 
um, you know, physically healing them from their diseases. I mean, he, did, he does ultimately in the cross uh, give this great healing of the forgiveness of sins, but at that time he did not heal everyone he came across. But the reason why he did these healings uh, were definitely to uh, create these events for faith to happen. Uh, as he'd encounter these people, he would do these healings, and these healings were a uh, declaration. They were signs. They were declarations to show that he was the Son of God who has come to forgive of the sins. Uh, they are signs to point us and funnel us all towards that uh, climatic work on the cross, which is the forgiveness of sins. So in thinking about this, uh, the reality is that, you know, Jesus, even though he did heal a lot, he did not heal everyone in that New Testament era, in that time of Jerusalem and that whole Israel landscape. Uh, he technically only healed just a fraction of the people. Um, how then are we to deal with uh, terrible sufferings? I mean, um, you know, speaking to, to parents who have lost children to cancer or car accidents or um, all, I mean, there's no end to the number, the level of suffering there is in this world. And we pray, we, we say, Lord, uh, by your mercy, you know, heal, heal this person. And in some time, sometimes he, he doesn't, that person um, suffers even death. How are we to understand this thing, um, suffering in this life of the Christian? Yeah, suffering is definitely, boy, it is, it is a part of everyone's life. I mean, I, you know, no matter who you are, um, you have suffering. And I think there's really different ways of dealing with suffering. You know, sometimes people look at suffering and they run the opposite way. They, <clears throat> they run to do uh, things of, uh, of, a, of happiness, things that have, uh, uh, definitely have joy and so forth. So they try to offset the suffering by, by running the opposite direction. Other times we can think with suffering that we're overcomers and that we can somehow kick suffering in the rear and, 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 and rise victorious over it. Um, but all of these um, go the way, unfortunately, of putting ourselves in control of suffering. And the reality is that uh, for the most part, unless it's you know, due to blatant sin, for the most part when we talk about sufferings of sickness and death and so forth, uh, we don't go choose these sufferings. They choose us. Um, they, 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 they come upon us, you know, the death of a loved one, the death of a spouse, the, the cancer of a, of a child. These things come to us. And the reality and the struggle with this is we so oftentimes want to try to figure out the, the why. You know, why is this happening? Now, sometimes that is very clear why the suffering happens, and we can pinpoint it. But I think the better question uh, to ask is not why. The better question to ask is where do we go from here? Uh, we think of Psalm 119. Every time there's affliction in the Psalms, and Psalm 119, we hear about affliction. Uh, that affliction drives us to the Word. Uh, that affliction drives us to the cross. And so I think it's better when we have our suffering not to try to wrestle the why, because even if we figure out the why, it hasn't solved suffering at all. So we can say, well, you know, why am I suffering? If we can figure out why, it doesn't relieve the suffering. We're still in that suffering, and oftentimes we're powerless to get out. So what's more important is to go to the real Jesus, because it's only the real Jesus who will meet us in that suffering, the real Jesus who doesn't shy away and run away from our suffering. It's only the real Jesus who comes to us in the midst of our suffering. And not only can he understand, but he imparts the forgiveness of sins, and he imparts strengthening of our faith in the midst of our trials, and to hear that he will be with us uh, to the very end of the age, that he will neither leave us nor forsake us, uh, that he is our Lord and Savior in life and also in death. I think all of us have uh, Jim and Stacy's that we know. What can we say to them? Well, you know, here's here's the the, the troubling part when we when we interact with them. Unfortunately, I think we have to be a little bit tough with them um, in order for them to understand their their false Christ. The, the reality is with the Jim and Stacy Jagers, they really want to impose their um, giver a bling and their false ideology on everyone else. But as often is the case with most of us in this life, we don't like applying things to ourselves. And so in this situation with Jim and Stacy, you know, Jim has glasses. Uh, my question would be with Jim, uh, Jim, 
if you have glasses, that's an ailment you cannot see. Why do you have glasses? You should actually pray for uh, healing. You should storm the gates of heaven and demand from the giver bling to give you healing of your eyesight. I mean, why on earth would you want to live without suffering of bad eyesight? And then actually push them on their ideology. Or, Stacy, you know what? You haven't had that job promotion in three years. Uh, you really need to pray more. And, and you need to pray to get the Lord, you know, this, this giver of bling, to, to give you that job promotion. So we really need to turn the theology on them to show them uh, that it's not even working for them. Uh, and we do that not to be cruel, but we do that to try to bankrupt their ideology so that we might be able to confess the real Jesus Christ in the midst of their sin as well as ours. That almost reminds me of how Elijah dealt with the prophets of Baal in this kind of... <laughs> You know, uh, you know, where is your God? You know, why why isn't he, he why isn't he raining down in fire? Um, I mean, it's, it's at least an exposure of the false god. Yeah, that's, that's such a good story. I, I I just I love that. I mean, you know, you go back in the Hebrew there. It's like is your is your you know is your is your false god? Is he busy in the bathroom? Is that why he can't come? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, in a sense, I mean, that that sounds very kind of cruel to do this, but. But ultimately, we, we do have to turn that ideology because they're so focused on promoting that ideology on other people that they're blind to see the areas where they haven't applied it to themselves. And so something as simple as eyeglasses or if they have back pain or um, if they haven't had that job promotion, we need to turn it on them and say, do you not have enough faith? And the reality is they don't. They don't have enough faith uh, because the faith that they're actually clinging to is not real faith. They need to become bankrupt in seeing that their ideology does not even work with themselves, uh, so that they might come to the end of themselves to see themselves as poor, miserable sinners. And then and only then can we reveal uh, and deliver the real Jesus Christ uh, to them. Great stuff. We've been talking with Dr. Matt Richard. He's author of the book, Will the Real Jesus Please Stand Up? Look forward to our next conversation. Matt, thanks for coming on again. Sounds good. Yeah, it's really, really fun. Appreciate it, Evan. You bet. And we, you, you can get more information about the book by going over to our website, onceforallradio.com. There is a link in the show description so you can find out more information about the book. It is available now, and I encourage you to check it out. Great, fantastic book. And uh, we'll be uh, continuing the conversation with Matt Richard uh, again. Thanks for listening to this edition of Once For All. We'll talk to you again tomorrow. This has been Once For All. You can contact the show by sending an email, delivered once for all at gmail.com. You can listen again to this show or any other episodes by visiting onceforallradio.com. Until next time, stand firm in the faith once delivered to the saints.